Hi, it's Ken White. And this is Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. So, Ken, we we spoke last week shortly after news that uh, Donald Trump's home slash resort in Palm Beach, Florida, Mar-a-Lago, had been raided by the FBI looking for certain documents uh, that do not belong to former President Trump, that belong to the United States government, uh, that he is supposed to leave in the possession of the United States government under the Presidential Records Act and, and certain other laws. And there's a lot that we didn't know at the time that we discussed that. We didn't know that the precise reason that the U.S. government had sought this warrant. We didn't know what statutes they might be investigating crimes uh, under for the and that the warrant was for the purpose of investigating. And we also didn't know, and we still don't know exactly how the the government came to believe that it would find evidence of a crime if it looked through these rooms at Mar-a-Lago. But we've learned some things that we didn't know then. And in particular, we've seen the search warrant and we've seen the inventory uh, of, uh, of items seized during the search since then. And so I think something that we talked about last week and that people are, are more familiar with now than they might previously have been, uh, is that the, there's a document that's a search warrant that basically says what you can look for and where you can look for it. Uh, there's a receipt that describes in some level of detail what items were taken in the search. There's another separate document that we haven't seen and that you do not ordinarily get to see at this stage of the investigation, which is an affidavit supporting the search warrant that explains why you would believe uh, that you were going to find the evidence the, uh, that you were looking for there. So we still don't know exactly what information led them to seek this warrant, but what did we learn once we got to see the warrant itself uh, and the inventory? Well, we learned that it looks like a fairly straightforward search warrant. It's on literally a form, and like any search warrant, it sets out uh, when you're allowed to do this. It had a deadline of 10 days. It specified it had to happen in the daytime because the government didn't establish a reason to do it at night. And it had attachments. One of those attachments is a description of the location to be searched. Here it was Mar-a-Lago and specifically a particular part. Uh, it excluded anything being rented by any Mar-a-Lago guests, uh, but included any place that the former president was using to store documents. And then it had what was really the key is the attachment of the items to be seized. And, and here's where we learned the most, uh, because it said that they were searching for any fruits, uh, evidence, contraband of uh, violations of Title 18 United States Code, Section 793, which is the Espionage Act, Section 2071, which is a statute about wrongfully holding on to government documents, and Section 1519, which is obstruction of an investigation. So those things together, first of all, made it pretty clear that this is only about this topic. It's only about wrongful retention of government documents. It does not appear there's any indication here whatsoever that this is about January 6th. Mm -hmm. And then should we talk about the receipt in terms of what was seized, what we know about the documents that were taken? Sure. There is a receipt. It is about as detailed as these things tend to be. And it included uh, things as uh, weird as information regarding the president of France, which I'm sure <laughs> has the president of France sort of uh, scratching his head, uh, a uh, executive grant of clemency to Roger Stone, which is presumably the one that was public and uh, reduced his sentence. But then a series of documents uh, that were classified at different levels, everything from confidential 
to classify, to top secret, to something called SCI, sensitive compartmentalized information that is extremely highly secret and has elaborate uh, rituals and guidelines uh, governing who can even look at it, who can have it at the same time. And it had everything from boxes and stuff like that to some sort of mysterious leather-bound box. You know, one kind <laughs> of imag imagines the, the dispatch box where, uh, you know, the, the queen looks at stuff. And so, uh, yeah, but definitely things that they believed were classified. And so then this list, the specific information on here, as you note, is that certain documents were secret or top secret or, or SCI. And so certain people have pointed out that just because a document has classified markings, that wouldn't necessarily mean that it was in fact classified. I mean, you could have a document that went through a, a normal declassification process, but you'd still have a copy of it that would say top secret or secret on it. There's also this sort of how many angels can dance on a head of a pin conversation about Trump can't declassify classified documents now, but when he was president, he had broad authority to declassify documents if he wished. And the question is, you know, the, the there's a procedure that you're supposed to go through to do that, but you have certain conservative attorneys saying things about, well, maybe once the president decides something is declassified, it is declassified because of his plenary authority to declassify documents. He might not even have to tell anyone if he thinks that the document is declassified, then he's declassified it in his own mind. Uh, there's also this claim that people around Trump have been making that he issued some sort of standing order that any document brought to the residents at any time was declassified which uh, seems unlikely and would be a pretty bad practice given that the president might have, you know, reasons to take things there that, well, actually, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I guess maybe, I don't know if there's a skiff in the, uh, but anyway, anyway, there's this sort of conversation about, you know, well, what if these documents weren't really classified for some normal reason or for some weird ass theoretical reason? But one key thing about the three statutes under which they're investigating here is that the documents wouldn't even need to be classified. It wouldn't matter if the documents were classified in terms of whether he violated the specific laws that are discussed there, right? That's exactly right. And it appears to me almost calculated to avoid that whole discourse. Because yes, we're absolutely getting into this repeat of things we heard during the Mueller investigation, basically uh, unitary executive theory writ large, saying the president can do anything the president wants to do. Kind of a callback to Richard Nixon's, if the president does it, it's not illegal. All the way up to this rather religious idea that the president can just within his head deem something unclassified and it therefore <laughs> is. Even the whole point of the classification process is to have records of what's classified and what's not. But all that could be irrelevant to these particular crimes they're investigating. The Espionage Act, for instance, which doesn't exactly have a, a rosy history, can be applied to anything that has to do with national defense information. So it doesn't have to be classified at all. And uh, section 2071 is of a wide array of documents. Those don't have to be classified. So if you expect that the Department of Justice is taking a serious shot at this, you would expect them to do it in a way that avoids unnecessary fights and that avoids defenses that they don't need to engage with. And this definitely suggests that they have their mind on that. And we're going to anticipate all of his arguments about, you know, it's only classified if I thought it was classified. But even though that would meet the the legal bar there, I mean, one thing we talked about last week is sort of, you know, they, they better have a good reason for having done this. Right. Um, and so I think if it's basically just about like, you know, there are records that were supposed to be with the government and they're not, uh, and there's no 
demonstration of, of a particular injury to national security related to that, uh, you might be fairly easily able to prove that the former president committed a crime. And then also, and, and we've seen some stuff about this in the last week, that he was uncooperative with the government in the process where the government tried to do less invasive things to obtain the return of these documents. And he did not comply with that. And they basically showed that, you know, he knew that he had to turn these documents over. They had tried getting them in, in ways other than searching Mar-a-Lago. They failed. That's why they escalated. So that's all understandable. But like, is it possible that whatever crimes th they're going to make a case against him under here are just not very serious? I mean, I realize the Espionage Act has an impressive name. There have been some news reports suggesting that there was information about nuclear weapons in these documents. But again, it's easy to imagine a nuclear weapons document whose disclosure would be extremely damaging to national security interests. And it's also easy to imagine a, a document related to nuclear weapons whose disclosure would be completely trivial for national security interests, even conceivably if it, if it was secret or top secret. There's a lot of overclass classified information out there. So should we be wondering, as we were wondering last week, about basically whether this is going to look like a relatively trivial reason to proceed toward an indictment of Donald Trump? Well, a, a number of commentators out there have pointed out that uh, the Espionage Act and 2071 generally don't get prosecuted if they're just plain vanilla and there are no aggravating factors. There tends to be some sort of aggravating factor, some plus factor. And that could include the sensitive nature of the information, indications that it was being misused in some way, or pervasive refusal to cooperate. I mean, what Hillary Clinton had going for her in the investigation of her emails was that her team was cooperative in terms of answering questions, sitting for hearings, uh, turning over documents, things like that. But the indication here is that Trump's team was repeatedly asked about the existence and possession of these documents and either lied about them or refused to turn them over. And, and that's very much the sort of X factor that you would expect might lead to further investigation. I mean, sometimes people just want to get charged <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to take any of the off ramps from getting charged. So if you had a client who was compliant and sensible, and you had some client control over them. As Renato Mariotti pointed out in an interview about this, you would absolutely negotiate a return of the documents immediately with a good hope that such cooperation would take it out of the category of things they're likely to prosecute. But that's not Trump. Uh, he's not cooperative, and he has strong views of what he's entitled to do. The indications here are that the DOJ team visited, asked questions, investigated, and maybe got some sort of false reassurances that he didn't have any such documents. And there's an interesting wordplay issue here, Josh, and that yes. is the difference between classified documents and documents marked classified. Yes, this is also a repeat of, of the Hillary Clinton matter where the, the Clinton attorneys kept pointing out that there were no emails marked classified on the private server. And then, but there were certain, there was certain information that was deemed to be classified, which can happen. You know, you produce a document and it's sensitive and no one stamps a classified marker on it. And then people figure out later, oh, actually this should be classified. And that makes it such that you were not allowed to do certain things with the document even before it had the marking. And then there was, again, questions about, you know, a lot of stuff is classified. Is this really important or not? But so that's where we had that classified, mark classified distinction here. But here, the distinction sort of goes the other way around, right? Where the, exactly. these documents, we know there are documents that are marked classified. 
Uh, and so there's a discussion about, you know, maybe for certain reasons, even though they have classified markings, they're not classified. But Trump's attorney had represented in June that they had returned all the documents that were marked classified. And so we now know that the FBI, in fact, found a whole bunch of documents that were marked classified. And if it turns out they are not, in fact, classified for whatever reason, that representation was still false because the rep representation was they returned everything that was marked classified. Right. And that's exactly, I mean, a statement like that to the Department of Justice investigating classified documents is exactly where you would like to be precise with your language. Right. Because, yes, you can say, oh, I don't have any classified documents and then maybe get away with because I declassified them all. Uh, but <laughs> if you're saying there are none that are marked classified and, and they are marked, then you're going to have to go with some sort of argument like, well, that distinction isn't important because they're declassified now. And th that's just not a good argument. Well, and especially with regard to 1001, um, something yes. that we've talked about a lot, that this is the statute against making that makes it a crime to make false statements to federal officials. The bar for your statement to have been materially false under 1001 is sort of preposterously low, right? Right. Is it the type of information that could conceivably be relevant to a hypothetical investigation, not necessarily the investigation in front of you? And this is an excellent example, Josh, about why generally lawyers, and particularly criminal defense lawyers, avoid making factual representations on behalf of clients, particularly clients with a long history of, uh, let us say, uh, a, a contentious relationship with the truth. <laughs> um, it's not a good idea to say something like that about classified documents unless you have personally verified it to a high level of confidence. We have a question from listener Paul Babwin about the potential relevance of classified documents to a prosecution that could happen here. So again, one, one thing we've discussed is a reason why this might be an impressive reason to prosecute Donald Trump would be that there are particularly sensitive documents whose misplacement, uh, who you know, if, if they're at Mar-a-Lago in an unsecured place where someone might gain access to them, that that poses a real risk to national security. And if you wanted to air that out, in a trial, presumably you would need to say something about the content of those documents. The problem being that if those documents are highly sensitive and the disclosure of the information in the documents is damaging to national security, presumably the government would like to avoid having to discuss the content of those documents in, in any detail. And also depending on the exact, I mean, I guess maybe if it's not an element of the crime, maybe you don't have to air it in court. But the defense might also have good reason why they would want to discuss the content of the documents. What do you do in a situation like that where evidence relevant for a criminal trial uh, is classified? How do, you, how do you handle documents of that nature? Well, there are a elaborate group of protocols and approaches and orders you ask the federal judge to make in the prosecution and things like that. They are extremely unwieldy. And unfortunately, uh, they are exactly the type of orders that play into anyone out there with a conspiratorial mindset. Just if, oh, hypothetically, anyone like that was looking at this situation. So you could have prosecutions where all sorts of parts of the case are sealed to the public and restrictions on how documents can be entered into the record or used in court and what can be said in court. But it is a huge pain. And it 
looks very bad in a way. It looks like, you know, a secret trial against somebody, which is exactly what we're not supposed to tolerate in America. So it's a very bad scenario in that way for the government. So typically what you may happen sometimes is the government doing a very sanitized version of proof and not getting into the nature of the documents other than the most general sense, and the defense really wanting to get into the nature of the documents so that they can kind of torpedo the case, cause chaos, cause controversy, uh, et cetera. And that would be a particular problem here, right? Because, I mean, in, in a run-of-the-mill case about disclosure of these documents, you maybe don't necessarily care very much about convincing the broad public that the government had a really good reason to bring the prosecution. But here, where the, the politically sensitive nature of this, in particular, the expectation of a lot of people in a lot of different places on the political spectrum that, you know, if, if you're going to put us through all this trouble, it better be for a really good reason. That makes it a lot harder to do that sanitized version. It, it creates more of an impetus to say more about what's in the documents. It definitely is. And that tension is here very strongly, uh, the tension between Department of Justice's normal procedures about what it does or doesn't comment about and the huge political pressure to say something to justify what they're doing and to respond to the many conspiracy theories and accusations and demands to defund the FBI and things like that. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about a, a couple of matters related to that. The first is that Merrick Garland made a public statement last week about the search. It was a very careful statement. It was not a James Comey-type statement with a ton of editorial commentary and didn't talk really at all about the purpose of the search itself. He basically said, you know, there's intense public interest in this. We think that it's in the public's interest that the court should allow the release of the warrant and the receipt, though, of course, not the affidavit underlying the warrant. Right. And then he also noted that he had personally approved the search. There had been some speculation about the idea that it maybe was some rogue people in the U.S. attorney's office in South Florida or at the FBI who basically decided to do this search without asking the likes of Chris Ray and Merrick Garland whether it was a good idea. That would have been a really weird thing. It, it is not the thing that happened. Merrick Garland made <laughs> clear that he did, in fact, personally approve this search. What did you make of Merrick Garland's comments? Did he do a good job of talking about this publicly in a way that avoided either undermining the investigation or unfairly prejudicing public views on exactly what Donald Trump had been up to? Uh, did he talk about it in a way that avoided creating problems down the road as they continue in this investigation? I thought so. I thought it was a pretty conservative application of Department of Justice policy. Generally, it's the policy of the Department of Justice that they don't confirm or deny the existence of a grand jury investigation, of a criminal investigation, even if there's literally a team of FBI agents in ray jackets and, and guns searching someplace. They're not going to confirm there's an investigation. However, the U.S. Attorney's Manual has an exception that I think he's thinking of here. I'm going to read it to you because I think it kind of illustrates the area. It says that in matters that have already received substantial publicity or about which the community needs to be reassured that the appropriate law enforcement agency is investigating the incident or release of information is necessary to protect the public interest, safety or welfare, comments about or confirmation of an ongoing investigation may need to be made. In those unusual circumstances, the involved investigative agency will consult and attain approval from higher ups. So this was very much something that was hugely in the news. It was impossible to deny there was an investigation. And so I think he made the call that it was inappropriate to make a very narrow statement uh, that, yes, there's an investigation. And yes, you know, I approved it. And then he let the warrant do the talking. So what he said is, we're going to agree 
to unseal this public document. And that was completely appropriate. So it's a very narrow, conservative, rule-bound. I think I got in a lot of trouble last time I described that attorney general as rule-bound, but here generally is <laughs> rule-bound uh, approach to the situation. One of the main reasons that a warrant would be sealed is to protect the interests of the person who's been searched, uh, that you know you don't want people learning about searches and investigations that may never lead to an indictment. And I assume that therefore also would ordinarily be improper for a law enforcement official to go on national television and say, this warrant is sealed, but we think it would be great if the public could see it. And so we'll let the target, if he if he wishes to object, he can file an objection. If not, then we'll ask the court to unseal it. Normally, there would be sort of undue pressure on the on the target of the of the search. The very unusual circumstances here, I mean, I, Donald Trump had spoken very publicly about the fact of the search, so Trump could not be harmed by the mere disclosure of the existence of the search. I think, though, that the fact that a bunch of information marked classified was seized from Mar-a-Lago, I think, is a, is a damaging revelation for the former president, who might have, under other circumstances, have preferred to keep that secret, which would ordinarily be his right at this stage in the investigation. He has a copy of the, the warrant. He did not have to show it to anyone. What makes it okay for the attorney general to basically bring that public pressure for that disclosure of that sealed document? Well, I think the way he sort of covered his ass on that was in a procedural way. Here's what we're going to do, and if he wants to object, he can. So he's just describing the procedure. That would be sort of the defense. Also, though, I, I think that Trump absolutely leaned into this, made it public, confirmed the search. And so it was, I can see how you can take it as a little trolley, uh, and it was, but it was fair response to what the person had already said. If Trump had gone absolutely radio silent and had made no statements whatsoever about it, then I think it would have been close to the line whether or not it was ethical or appropriate to sort of dare him like that. But of course, we didn't have a situation where Trump was silent. He and his cutouts uh, were uh, talking all about it. One thing that we've seen or that we were seeing before the warrant was released was a number of Republicans saying that we should not only see the warrant, we should see the affidavit supporting the warrant, that we, you know, were owed an explanation of why the FBI and the Department of Justice thought it was appropriate under the circumstances to conduct this search, what evidence they were acting based upon. Uh, and that's the sort of information that you would get much more from the affidavit than from the warrant itself. I've been hearing fewer calls for that since we've seen the warrant, <laughs> in part because I think people reasonably assume that the contents of the affidavit would be likely quite damaging to the interests of former President Trump. I guess on Tuesday morning, Trump did again ask for the release of the affidavit. But uh, again, I haven't been seeing that as much from his allies as, as we were a week ago. When might we see that affidavit or what's in that affidavit? Yeah, the uh, some congressional Republicans had scheduled a press conference to talk about it and uh, call for the release, which got abruptly canceled for scheduling purposes. I'm sure they have very complicated schedules. Josh, normally we would see it after there's a indictment and it would be in discovery released to the defendants in the course of the case. Sometimes if the case is basically terminated without an indictment, it might then be unsealed, either deliberately by the Department of Justice or based on a media request. So what judges take into account if someone is seeking to unseal something like this over the government's objection or the defendant's objection is, you know, do we need to protect an ongoing investigation? Is this going to 
reveal what's currently happening in a way that can let people thwart the investigation? Is it going to endanger informants who might be described in there either by name or in a way about their knowledge that, that shows who they are? And will it hurt uh, the right to a fair trial of anyone mentioned in there? And let's just point out that Trump may not be the only one facing criminal charges over this. Uh, any number of people who are involved in the removal of the documents and in later communications with the Department of Justice could be on the hook. So Trump may be able to rather foolishly say, hey, I don't care if everything comes out, but that may not be in the best interest of everyone who is in the zone of danger here. You've been listening to the free version of this week's episode of Serious Trouble. For paying subscribers, there's about another 25 minutes. Ken and I continued on to discuss certain additional issues regarding the Mar-a-Lago search and warrant, questions about executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, what FBI agents can take from your home even if it isn't listed on a search warrant, and the seizure and return of three of Donald Trump's passports. We also talked about the deposition that Trump finally sat for with the New York Attorney General and about his choice to take the Fifth Amendment in that deposition. And we talked about upcoming grand jury testimony from Rudy Giuliani and Lindsey Graham in Atlanta. Both men have been unsuccessfully fighting subpoenas to testify before a grand jury that is investigating interference in Georgia's election results. If you'd like to hear that episode and all of our other episodes, all their complete versions, let me remind you that it's $6 a month or $60 for the full year to become a paying subscriber to Serious Trouble. If you do that, you're directly supporting this podcast. You'll get every single episode we make in a private podcast feed just for you, and you'll be able to join our discussion threads on every episode. You can sign up for that at SeriousTrouble.show, and then you'll be a few clicks away from hearing the rest of my conversation with Ken. So become a paying subscriber today at SeriousTrouble.show. We really appreciate your support. And either way, we will have more Serious Trouble for you soon.